All right, thank you, Brandon. One thing I look forward to is 114 degree days. No, not you? Me either. That's why I have my haircut so short, you know that? It's really just heat maintenance, that's what I do. Uh, well, hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve. Pray that this morning is a blessing to you. As Brandon said, however we can help you take your next step with Jesus Christ, we're lo- we would love to be able to do that. Find any one of our team wearing one of those uh, aqua lanyards, and we'd love to answer any questions you may have about Citadel Square, who we are, um, and what our story is here. Uh, as Brandon said, we are in the middle of a study of the book of Revelation. We've uh, kind of got the landing gear down. There's a lot more to say here in this book, but if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. I'll give you a little bit of an overview of where we've been the past couple weeks. Revelation 14 is somewhat of a future-looking chapter. Uh, We saw the promise in Revelation 14 of the 144,000 that will be saved and preserved and comforted and will ultimately see victory by standing on Mount Zion with Jesus Christ the Lamb when he returns. And they were part of the preaching crew that happens in the book of Revelation, that throughout the tribulation period, the last seven years, you have uh, martyrs who will testify and lose their life uh, for the namesake of Jesus Christ. You'll have the 144,000 who are sealed from every tribe of the nation of Israel who will be uh, worldwide proclaimers of the gospel message. They're like 144,000 Apostle Pauls or Uh, Daniels or uh, the Josephs, they're great men in the end days. You had the two witnesses that show up in the city of Jerusalem, uh, looking a lot like Moses and Elijah. And then we looked last week at a future-looking text in the middle of chapter 14. And in the middle of chapter 14, we saw our first glimpse of eternity. You preach those passages with a little bit of fear and trembling, because God uses a lot of economy of language, right? Right? God can take eternity and boil it down into forever and ever. And that was our first look, really, at at where this book is headed. This book is headed into forever and ever, amen. That's where we're headed, into eternity future. So as such, this book allows us to live our lives today being certain of what will be true one day, right? That's, that's why we have the book of Revelation, that you as a Christian with your eyes in your head, I don't know what that illustration means, but with your eyes in your head, are able to look at your time and culture and your life and be able to live wisely knowing that one day Jesus will return, Jesus will rule, and Jesus will conquer Uh, the entire planet. That's what Revelation 14 is going to tell us. Uh, Let me start with a little bit of of an aside. Um, This week, you probably had this moment in your life where some event, some circumstance, some struggle showed up in your life, and you came to the crossroads We have lots of these throughout our spiritual journey and our relationship with Jesus Christ where you come to a crossroads and you go, do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Because as I look around into my circumstances or my feelings or my personal experience, I find it hard to understand that God is who he says he is because of what I'm experiencing. You ever been there? Like that's everybody's experience with Jesus. You ever walk through a season of life where you go, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing. Anybody been there? Four of you, the rest of you are just always know what Jesus is doing. That's encouraging. That's why we ask you to come to this church. You can teach the rest of us. Uh, 
but we all face these moments and these seasons. And one of the reasons that we as a church teach expositionally through the scriptures, that means verse by verse, it's not because I lack creativity, it's that I believe that the scriptures uh, are the place where God speaks for himself, right? So then when I come to the Bible and I come to the word of God, we believe that God wants to be known and God gives us his word because he cares about us. He sends us Jesus because we, we need him and he loves us. And in that kind of tension that we live in, what you need as you journey in your relationship with God is you need to understand who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in the word. Otherwise, you will gain your information about God by what the culture says or what your upbringing says or what your friends say or what social media says. And when that happens, your understanding of God and who God is as revealed to us in the scriptures gets anemic. It gets, it gets stunted. It gets limited. And then you believe in a God who is really less than the Bible says he is. You with me? That that's, that's a tension for all of us. And the reason we have these tension points in our Christian life is that we get to seasons of life where we don't understand God and who he is, and we feel like, God, I thought you to be this way, but I'm going through this experience. It seems like you're different than I thought you were. You ever been there? That you've, you've had experiences, both good and bad, where you realize God to be far more gracious, perhaps, than you thought him to be or far more merciful than you thought, that you used to think of God as judge, and you find out that, no, he's also savior, that you think of God as just, but no, he's also loving, that, that we do this all the time, and that our culture has a tendency of shaping who we believe God to be. Well, Steve, what's the point? Here's the point. Hebrews says this. It says that long ago, and in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these Last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This happens all the time in Christianity, that people think Jesus is some kind of divine superhuman. They think Jesus is a great teacher. They think Jesus is just sort of this spiritually mopey, squishy kind of individual who moves from miracle to miracle. But what they miss a lot of times about Jesus, and this is through the Gospels, and it's really throughout the entirety of Scripture, and what we're going to look at today is they're going to miss the full radiance of the glory of Jesus. And in Revelation 14, we're going to look at something about Jesus that you have probably not thought about in a while. We are going to look at the wrath of the Lamb. That Jesus, as we'll see in this passage, is the one who is doing the reaping. He is the one who is calling to account. Hebrews said that it is appointed to man to die and then to face judgment. And what we have in Revelation 14 as we come to the close of this chapter and get ready for really two major events in the book of Revelation are summaries of what these events are. You have two major events that still have yet to happen in this book. You have the seven bowl judgments. You have the uh, judging of Babylon. 
the center of Antichrist's world power, and you have the Battle of Armageddon. The uh, biographical information about Babylon we'll see in a couple chapters. But this chapter, Revelation 14, just like the past couple of uh, passages, is going to look forward. It's going to be a summary of those events in two distinct visions. And this is a very easy text to outline. You've got two harvests. You're going to have a grain harvest and you're going to have a grape harvest. Characterized by really three things in both passages, you're going to have a ripeness, a reaping, and reapers. So if you, got, you would like to outline, those are the things that we're going to see in both of these passages. These passages uh, are going to be unique in their brevity, that they're treated very short. It's only six verses, and you have the cataclysm of the judgment of Jesus Christ in the reaping of the grain harvest and the cataclysm of the last battle summarized in three verses each. Very, very simple. A lot of times in your judgment narratives throughout the Old Testament, you'll have lots of dialogue around them. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's preceded, God's judgment is preceded by this conversation between Abraham and God. And they go back and forth, and and Abraham says, God, would you spare the city for 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? And there's this dialogue. They go back and forth. There's this dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh. Let my people go. I won't. Plague number one, two, three, four, five. Let my people go. Six, seven, eight. Let my people go. Eight, nine, ten. There's long chapters. When Jonah shows up at Nineveh, there's 40 days of preaching. Well, he doesn't get that far. He has a day or so of preaching. Everybody repents, and he's mad about it. But the whole book of Jonah is precipitated upon this idea of God and Jonah talking about saving Nineveh. There's none of that here. Conversation is over. Dialogue is done. Men have no opinion on this passage. All of the decisions that get made in this passage come from heaven themselves. And they're executed according to heaven's timeline, heaven's plans. There's nothing for you necessarily to obey in this passage. There's no moral commands. It's a record of what God will do when he's ready. So as such, this text is a sobering text. This is a text that reminds us of the glory of Jesus Christ and his right to judge, which I'll show you as we get going, all right? Let's pray and ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for singing songs to you and worshiping you because you have saved us in what Jesus has done for us. We stand amazed at the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We come in here today and we repent of the sin that so easily entangles. We want to run the race with steadfastness that's before us and we desire to be reminded of all of the glory of who you are. That we would look away from our circumstances and worship the one and true living God that has spoken in his son. So Father, as we have maybe come in here with a limited view of who we are, I pray that you just expand the borders in our mind. That your infinity and your eternity and your power and your sovereign rule and right to judge when you see fit would capture our hearts. That this message and this story here in these, in these brief visions would cause us to fear you, perhaps, again, perhaps for the first time, and that we would order our lives based on the truth we see here. We pray for your blessing and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, Revelation 14, y'all there? Hey, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the pews in front of you. If you're looking around and you don't, you don't have a phone, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, go ahead and take that. That's our gift to you. But turn all the way to the right side and find Revelation 14. And we're going to be in verses 14 through 20. Let's take a look here at Revelation 14, uh, 14 through 20. The last couple of paragraphs here. In your Bible, it may have the harvest of the earth. As I said, you've got two harvests here. The first harvest is the grain harvest, which we'll look at. And then we'll look at the grape harvest. Uh, both of them put next to each other. Look at 14, 14 with me. Then I looked... And behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. Now, uh, this is a common, or, or it's a common theme throughout both the Old and New Testament. If you remember, the angels in the book of Acts are all talking to the disciples as they watch Jesus ascend into heaven, and the angels show up and say, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus will return in the very same way. Uh, if you look at uh, really the beginning of this book, Revelation chapter 1 said, Behold, he is coming on the clouds. You remember that? All the way back in the beginning of the book, it said that. It also, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, it also should probably cross-reference Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But Daniel seven thirteen was the divine, uh, it was the, the Old Testament picture of what happens in Revelation 5, where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and receives his right to rule. And in Revelation 5, the Lamb receives the right to open up the, the scroll that is sealed with seven seals, to bring God's plan to fulfillment. So, Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So this, uh, this phrase, son of man, is used identically back in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus, who is standing among the churches. So this is probably a, another visible image of Jesus that begins our passage here. Now look at how he looks. He's on a white cloud, seated on a cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head. Now, the golden crown, Jesus, when he comes back in Revelation 19, will wear not this crown, but a different crown called a diadem. On his head, he had many diadems, which speaks to Jesus' infinite royalty, that the quality of who he is as the divine son and the divine king shows up in Revelation 19. Here, it's not that term for diadem. It's a term that has been consistently translated throughout the book as the conqueror's crown. It's the crown that they would give to the athletes who competed in the games, that they would win and they would have this, a Stephanos, this conqueror's crown. So here's the vision of Jesus looking like the son of man, riding on the clouds and wearing a conqueror's crown. The, uh, Jesus has only worn a Stephanos one other time. You know that? The last time that Jesus wears a Stephanos is at his crucifixion. It says he wears a Stephanos of thorns. That Jesus in his last hours is crowned the curse bearer. He's crowned as one who takes the curse of Adam upon his brow and then goes to the sacrifice, goes to be crucified to accomplish all that God wants him to accomplish. And consistently through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have this promise to those who conquer will share with my victory. To those who conquer will sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat on the Father's throne with him. 
So the vision you have of that's beginning this grain harvest is that Jesus is the one and true conquering king of heaven. Here he comes. And in his hand is a sickle. Now, if you're not into yard work, as I am not into yard work, you may have had to look up and figure out what is a sickle. A sickle is a moon-shaped item that has a blade in the middle, and it's got a handle on it. And it's used for pruning or reaping. It's a sharp-bladed instrument. It's like a scythe, or scythe, whatever it is, however you pronounce the Y. A scythe is a long arc. Remember the Grim Reaper? You know what the Grim Reaper is? Okay. No? That's fine. I lost that. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a thing to cut off a branch, or fruit, or, as you'll see here, grain. And it's sharp, which means what is about to fall is going to come with ultimate severity and ultimate certainty that Jesus is going to be given the right to do something, to judge, and to bring his authority in conquering those who are on the earth. Now, let's look here. Let me, I want to do one more thing, too, before we go on from this verse. Uh, I want to show you something because it's important. You can read this and go, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. But this is no small thing. Jesus coming to judge is a right that he had to earn. Did you know that? That it's a right that he doesn't have by virtue of just being God. But that he does something in obedience to the Father. Something to accomplish the plan that the Father and the Trinity had from eternity past to show that he has the right to do what he's about to do here. Let me show it to you. Keep your finger in Revelation 14. Turn to John 5. Jesus' complete obedience to the Father's will in accomplishing redemption for us is shown here in what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Take a look at John 5, 19. You see the authority of the Son there? That's kind of the heading over that passage in your Bible, John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. That Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, Jesus says in John 8, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. I always execute exactly what the Father wants me to do. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He shares the authority of the Father. This is what blew the Jews' mind, that Jesus would consider himself equal with God the Father as being able to do the very things that God the Father could do. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? To the Son. He's handed this authority into the hands of Jesus, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You see that? Believe my word, believe what the Father says about me. It matters very little, generally speaking, what we think about Jesus. It matters a whole lot about what the Father in heaven thinks about Jesus. You know that? That God the Father says something very, very important about Jesus and who he is. That he, God the Father, has handed to the Son, the divine Son, the right to judge everyone. Rejection of Jesus Christ is not just rejecting a Savior, it's rejecting the judge as well. 
because Jesus Christ also has the right to judge, as we'll see here in this passage in Revelation. Look at what he goes on in 525. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is who? He's the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? He's the Daniel 7 Son of Man. He's the one who has the right to come to the Father, to receive a kingdom from his Father because of his absolute obedience to the will of the Father, as demonstrated by his perfect life. You with me? That he did everything the Father asked him to do, and God says, now you have the right to execute judgment. You have the right because you are the Son of Man. So there's this divine affirmation of Jesus and who he is. This, is. this is what I'm talking about. When you have a vision of Jesus and who he is, you miss it if you reduce Jesus to merely savior and not judge. You limit your worship of Jesus. You'll look at Jesus as being essentially taken advantage of by the culture of his day and not the sovereign of the universe who upholds the universe by the word of his power. You'll miss it. Your worship will get little instead of big. Now come back to Revelation 14. This is all through the preaching in Acts. When Peter uh, goes to the Gentiles and goes to Cornelius, he says that Jesus has called them to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is the thing that we've got to tell everybody. When Paul preaches in Athens... He says virtually the same things. He says that in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's essential in our gospel presentation that Jesus is put forward as the divine son, as the savior of all mankind, no matter what background, no matter what sin, no matter who you are, no matter what your struggle is, you've got to come to Jesus Christ because he is the one and only savior of all mankind. Right? Not only that, he is the one and true and only judge of all mankind. That's the tension in the gospel. That he's got the right to save and he's got the right to execute judgment. And that's what you have in Revelation 14. Turn back to Revelation 14 with me. All right, Revelation 14, look at verse 15. So here's Jesus on a cloud with a sickle in his hand and here comes an angel. Verse 15 says this, another angel came out of the temple. Now, when's the last time we saw the temple? Do you know? If you've got a cross-reference, it's all the way back when the seventh trumpet is sounded. Revelation chapter 11. Remember that all those years ago? It was like 99. In Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet is sound. Heaven is opened and you see the temple of God in heaven. And you see the Ark of the Covenant. And now, from the temple comes an order. Comes a command from the Godhead itself to the one who is seated on the throne. This angel comes out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. Now you've got two four statements. You see them? There's two four statements at the end of this passage. The time is now. Jesus, it's time to reap because, number one, the hour to reap has come. You remember earlier in this very same chapter, 
14.7 said this. Just scan your finger up there to 14.7. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Revelation 14, verse 15, the hour to reap has come. It is time. Now, let me tell you, these are, uh, you know, if you're not outdoorsy or you don't plant seeds or you're not really into harvesting, this may be somewhat of an obscure picture. But all through both physical creation and our spiritual lives, there's this law of the harvest. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 6. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For what a man sows, that will he also what? Reap. Now, sowing and reaping, we do a little bit of gardening on our back porch. We have a variety of things that we plant. And any time that we plant, we always plant small things, and they turn into big things, right? You plant one seed, and you get fruit with lots of seeds, so that when you reap, you reap more than you sow, right? You also reap what you sow. Not one time have we ever planted corn and got tomatoes. It's been consistent. I don't even think, have we planted corn? No, we haven't. My girl said no, we haven't planted corn. That shows you how in tune with the planting I am. We plant peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that. But uh, every time we plant those seeds, we get the same thing that we know we're going to plant. So you reap what you sow. That's not hard to think about. But the important one that I want to draw our hearts to is that you always reap later than you sow, right? You plant it and you water it and you stand there and you look at it and you go, let's go, let's reap. That doesn't happen. When the weeds grow in my yard, they always grow. When I see them, they have always been growing for weeks and months, but I'm always surprised at how fast they grow. But it's taken time. And here in Revelation 14, you have this, this picture of it being time. Because what he says, see what he says there? The hour to reap has come. This is... This is a part of our spiritual lives, but so keep that in mind, okay? Later. Now look at the next four statement that he gives to you. But the hour is, is come. And then he explains it even further, and he says this, that the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That word fully ripe is used in different contexts based on the harvest. In the grain harvest, it's used and translated as overly dry, it's translated of the man who was born with the withered hand as having this kind of withered, dried-up hand. In the context of different kinds of fruit, it, the picture is overripe, squishy, right? The grapes you don't want to eat. They're way plenty ripe. That this picture of grain dried up is a picture of God's absolute and infinite patience. What we've consistently seen, and I've said this throughout the book of Revelation, is that God has been patient, hasn't he? That he's continued to send messages. He's continued to disturb the creation and have people preach the truth that he is coming. The hour is coming. His judgment is at hand. Turn, repent, sorrow over your sin, and call out for mercy from him who is seated on the throne. And now in this picture you have the very 
end where God's patience has waited to the very point that we saw last week where there's an angel flying in heaven proclaiming an eternal gospel, that God has stopped at nothing to preach the gospel everywhere, and now there is going to be a worldwide harvest. See, we understand intuitively in physical creation the law of the harvest. We understand that the things we sow will be reaped later. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, we like to sow hard work and get benefit and blessing, right? We like to sow discipline and get profit. And we understand that intuitively. But it also applies to our sins. That we sow unbelief and bitterness and we want to reap contentment. That we sow anxiety and fear and want to reap joy. We sow lustful selfishness and we want to reap peace. You ever go through seasons of life where you're just praying for crop failure? Where you go, oh God, I made some decisions that I have sown and I'm going to reap the whirlwind unless you step in. And hasn't God been kind to us? Where Psalm 103 says that there have been seasons where he did not treat us as our sins deserved. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad of God's kindness ruining your sinful planting sometimes? Where you go, if it wasn't for the grace of God showing up and changing the order and digging up those plants, I would have been in trouble. But the sobriety in this text is that these individuals on the planet at this time have continued to sow. Hosea says, you will sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. He says this in Galatians chapter 6 when Paul writes and he talks about fruit, deeds of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. What are you planting? What are the consistent seeds that you're putting into the ground? That's the question. Because there's coming a day where there is a reaping. There's coming a day where, the, where you will be held account by the judge of all the earth. And it's going to matter where you stand with him. Verse 16. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's it. No fanfare, no discussion, no dialogue. Commentators look at this, and they think this may have some, some kind of connection to Matthew 13, when Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares. You know that parable that he gives about the church age, about there are those who look a lot like wheat, but they aren't wheat. And Jesus says uh, of the angels who are the reapers at the end of the age, let them grow together until the harvest. That there's coming a time, when this is is what we've consistently seen through the book of Revelation, where there is division, right? That's why all of the marking passages have happened up to this point. Up to this point, we know what the teams are. And at this point in the book of Revelation, now you begin to have the accountability. And that will be poured out. This is probably the seven bold judgments that are about to fall in chapter 15 and 16. The reaping. Now, if you've got a cross-reference, you may have a cross-reference there at that in, that, in these first three verses of Joel chapter 3. You have that? Go back. I'm, I'm not going to make you turn there. You can read that in your own time. But Joel 3, verse 13, I'll just read it to you. It puts these two judgments, the grain and the grape, right together. Joel is this great passage where, that talks about uh, the, the day of the Lord coming, 
where God says, everybody gather up. Everybody get a weapon and you all come get some. That's the Steve translation. Essentially, that's in Joel chapter 3. And in Joel chapter 3, he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision where you're about to get judged. And Joel 3.13 says this, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. And that's what we're about to see here in the next one. So you see the, the grain harvest, the accountability, the division and separation of the godly and the ungodly is about to happen in this book. Now let's look at the grape harvest. If there was some element of distinction in wheat and tares and the good and the bad and the mark of the beast and the mark of the lamb, this one is unmitigated uh, judgment. Look at verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. Here's another word from the uh, Godhead. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over the fire. Now the two things there I want you to see are the altar and the fire. We saw the altar first in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, there were under the altar the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony. It's the martyrs in the tribulation era. And they cried out saying to God, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood that has been poured out on the earth? How long, God? What are you waiting for? And it said they were given a white robe and told to wait a little while until the full number of the martyrs had come in. So think about that. Revelation chapter 6, this pleading of God's people, praying, God, send justice. God, be just. God, follow through. God, pour out your wrath. And then we had Revelation chapter 8. Remember Revelation 8? Revelation 8 is the mixing of the prayers of the saints with the incense. And it's, it's laid before God and the smoke rises to heaven and the trumpet judgments begin to fall. So in both contexts, you have the ache of God's people for there to be repayment for the sins done against them. Do you know that that's a valid biblical category? It's not just sins against God. That's, that's, that's a part of it. But God also has a category of sins done against his people where he will pour out his wrath upon those who have persecuted, martyred, killed, and tormented his people. I'll prove it to you. Keep your finger in Revelation 14 and turn back to 2 Thessalonians 1. This is a scary passage. If you weren't scared already. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who are struggling under persecution, thinking that they have missed the day of the Lord. They've missed the ingathering where God has come and, and, and uh, brought his people to himself. That's one of the major struggles in First and Second Thessalonians. And in the thanksgiving of 2 Thessalonians 1, he gives thanks. And then he says this, the judgment at Christ's coming. You see that heading in your Bible? 2 Thessalonians 1.5, this is evidence. The receiving of the gospel of these people, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. It is costing this church something to believe in Jesus. In their culture, in their time, and in their day, their belief and clinging to the gospel message of Jesus being who he says he is, is causing suffering in their church. Since indeed God considers it just. Do you ever wonder what God's definition of justice is? Isn't that a great question to ask nowadays in our culture? What does God think is just? 
Watch what Paul says. God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to come back and set things right? Say Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus is going to be the divine big brother who shows up and has a word with the bully. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was, be, was to be, I'm sorry, blah, to you was believed. Do you know what that means? That means this church has moved from their relationship with the judge of all the earth into the one who saves and secures them and one day will pay back the torment that they have received into the hands of those who have tormented them. That is ultimately fulfilled in the book of Revelation. God is not forgetful. Do you know that? He has not missed sins. If you have experienced injustice... It is taken into the very hands of the one who will judge the whole earth. And he will judge those who have persecuted his people. It's not just you and God. It's you and how you've treated the people of God. Now, come back to Revelation 14. You know what Paul, this is what Paul says in the book of Romans. He he says, uh, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Well, why? Because we believe God is not forgetful. We believe Jesus knows every single sin that has been committed against him and against his people, and he will judge every single one if you are outside of Jesus Christ. Every single one. You with me? Every one. If, if your sins are not healed and uh, paid for in the blood of Christ, you will pay for them at the hands of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. Back in 14. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, what's a winepress? A winepress has two big troughs, an upper and a lower, and it's connected, kind of like a basin, and it's connected by a trough so that as you stomp out and crush the grapes up here, the juice flows into this trough and comes down into the basin that's on this side, an upper and a lower. So now all of the deeds of humanity on earth have been pruned. And this word for ripe is not a withered and dry. It is grapes in their prime. It is the perfect time to reap. So that the obstinance and the stubbornness and the hatred of God and of his Christ and the hatred of his people that's resulted in martyrdom has finally reached the top. And the word from the temple in heaven says, reap now. They gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, if you weren't sure how this picture works, you get even more vivid in verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle 
for 1,600 stadia. That's about 200 miles. Now, if you weren't sure if this is just a euphemism or a metaphor of wine presses and, and grapes that represent the sin of mankind, we have an answer to the crying out of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 who said, how long until you avenge our what? Our blood. And the wine press is transformed from this image of reaping grapes into a battlefield. And the battlefield is seen as the wine press, that now this great battle that's going to happen upon Christ's return, when all of the nations are gathered against the Lord and his Christ and his people, is going to happen outside of the city, probably Jerusalem. And there's going to be such a slaughter in this day that either, because there's, a, there's valleys in the land of Israel, this is about as much land as there is from the far north of Israel to the far south in Israel, that either there will be so much blood, carnage, and destruction that there will be a flowing river of blood, or that the blood will spatter four feet high onto the horses. Now, th this is gruesome. This is horrific. But it's only physical death. Because what follows, then, is what we saw last week. Just go up a couple of verses here, back in... 14, remember what we saw in 14? He will, verse 10, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. It's just the first death until there is ongoing conscious torment for all eternity for those who reject Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you've never seen this. Have you read Isaiah 53? That's a precious passage to a lot of us in the church, isn't it? The suffering servant passage of Isaiah that talks about Jesus having no form that we would be attracted to him and that he, he, he bore our sins in his body, that, it, that we all like sheep were led astray and the sins of, the, of our sins were laid upon him, right? That's that beautiful passage. But I want you to look at, at a place that maybe you haven't read before. I, when I got to seminary, I had never read this passage before. Turn to Isaiah 63. Toward the middle of your Bible. That big major prophet section of Isaiah and Jeremiah. I had a seminary professor read this and I went, this is in my Bible? I went, whoa. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? This is, this is south of Israel's land. It's kind of southeast of the Dead Sea. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads the winepress? That sound familiar? Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
There's Jesus at Armageddon. The very one who's been given the divine right as the son of man will come one day to conquer and defeat every single enemy that is raised up against him and his people. He will defeat them all. Now let's close here. Turn one more place. I'm making you turn a lot, I know. Turn one more to your right to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to close here. You know, last week we, we looked at uh, this, this beautiful encouragement of the people of God, didn't we? And uh, I want to show you this from Hebrews chapter 10. Again, this, this is not a text that you turn to often, but it's a text that's all through the New Testament. It's a text that, that Jesus talks about in John 5, that the author of Hebrews talks about, that Isaiah talks about, that Revelation 14 and John talks about. And the sobriety of a text like Revelation 14 that is so brief, so quick, and yet has the opinion of heaven over all the earth that calls all of the earth to account in Jesus' name shows up here in Hebrews chapter 10. You see the full assurance of faith there, 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Listen, I, I don't, this is not a popular or easy text to preach. And you may come in and go, Gee, nobody has ever shown me this side of Jesus Christ. And I would say that there is an opportunity for you today to get right with Jesus Christ. And the stakes are eternity. Because outside of Jesus Christ, you are going to reap the whirlwind. You are going to reap the consequences of every single sin, thought, word, and deed that you've committed throughout your entire life. And you will pay for them for eternity outside of Jesus Christ. That's why these passages are so rich and so powerful to those of us who know Jesus Christ because we understand what it means to have our drawn, to be able to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Amen? That he will do what he said he would do for us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen? That's what it's like to be in the church. To remember that our sins have been healed and cleansed and washed and we look forward to the day when he returns. But if you turn from the hope of the gospel, if you turn from Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. What follows is this paragraph. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. None. There's no other shot. There's no other method. There's no other way to step into the presence of God, pure and holy and cleansed from all your sin, except Jesus Christ. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know, and this is what every Christian in the room knows, every single Christian in the room knows this truth in this verse right here. Because it was the thing that drew us and reminded us that we have no other place to hide from the wrath and the fury of God but under the shelter of Jesus Christ. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's Revelation 14. It is a horror to face Jesus on this day with no hope of salvation, no forgiveness of sins, and to step into eternity facing the torment of the God of heaven and earth. But we got a message for you that you can turn, you can repent, you can receive today forgiveness and cleansing for every single sin that you have committed, thought, word, and deed from every single moment in your entire life, and you can be presented before the throne room of heaven, pure and spotless. Amen? Isn't that what we want our friends, our neighbors, our family, our kids to know? That there is a judge who is coming that has been entrusted to execute the judgment of heaven itself, but there's a way that you can be saved. There's a way that you can be free. There's a way that you can be clean and it's in Jesus and his blood. Would you consider him today as we pray? I'm gonna ask the band to come up and pray for you, pray for myself. Father, this text is a sobering text. It's one that we come to and maybe we're not familiar with, but that one that we need to be reminded of, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that we know that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we know that at the end of time, we will face judgment. So for those in this room who haven't heard that message before, that there is divine wrath coming, today I pray that they would turn from their sins. I pray that they would repent of their selfishness and their bitterness and their idolatry and their sexual sin and the words that they have spoken against you and against others and against Jesus and who he is, and they would find salvation and freedom and hope and forgiveness in Jesus' name. That today would be the day of salvation. That today, as the scriptures command us to repent, we would turn in repentance and receive healing and be revived in our soul by what Jesus has done for us. Father, would you bless us as we consider these things? Would we respond rightly to the truth of God in your word? Amen.